are entering the Freedom Hut. Federal prosecutors are charging dozens of people with a massive college admission scheme to cheat. Oh my, this is going to be pretty incredible. We get into the details, folks. You want to hear about this. What does it say about the elites in our society and the so-called meritocracy of the university? We got that for you. Plus, the border, the Dems' love of socialism, and so much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. A central defendant in the scheme, William Singer, will plead guilty today to charges of racketeering conspiracy, money laundering conspiracy, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and obstruction of justice. Between roughly 2011 and 2018, Wealthy parents paid Singer about $25 million in total to guarantee their children's admission to elite schools, including Yale, Georgetown, Stanford, the University of Southern California, the University of Texas, UCLA, and Wake Forest. Beyond enriching himself, Singer used that money to bribe college officials, Division I coaches, college exam administrators, all to secure admission for the children of his clients, not on their merits, but through fraud. Singer's foundation purported to be a charitable organization, but was actually a front Singer used to launder the money that parents paid him, of which he would then take a portion and dole it out as bribes to coaches and others. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Man, I love it when we get a story that we can really sink our teeth into that is not Russia collusion, is not one of these things that we've been covering, you know, day in and day out for a couple of years now. And this is one of them. This is pretty incredible stuff. And there there are some important lessons to take from all this. But just just to give you a sense, we're talking here. So college admissions, as we know, are hyper competitive. Those of you who have kids, you know, these days and I don't have kids, so I got to take your word for it. But you know, these days it's like you're you're getting them out of diapers and already you got to think about like, oh, are they going to prep for the SATs? You know, it's just turned into this arms race and it's out of control. I and mean, let me just say to you that from what I have now seen from I can't speak really as much of the generation above me. I think that the credentialing system of the university, which is all it is, the university now is a credentialing system. It doesn't there is no guarantee of your level of education where you go to school does not mean you are smart does not mean that you have some great background than anything. I I have personal and professional experience with brilliant people who went to community college or went to no college. And I have personal and professional experience with people who went to Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, you name it, who were pompous idiots. So it's a credentialing system because it's all we got, really. But when you dig into it a little more, what you find out is that it is imperfect at best. It is is way beyond imperfect. And that's when you look at legacy admissions, affirmative action uh, admissions, college uh, athletics recruiting. You know, there's all these different ways people get in being the best oboist in, you know, northern Alaska. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can get into these schools. 
and a lot of them that do not involve being the, the what you would think of as as the the most academically capable. And remember, and don't even get me started on this whole well, we need to have athletic recruiting. Why? These aren't minor league sports teams. Who cares? These are educational facilities. I mean, when you think about all the money and all the stuff that's going into the, and I know people love their college sports, but they should be treated as minor league, uh, minor league teams, and people should get paid. But we'll get into that discussion another time. So let's get into this though, this massive fraud that involves, that's right, an actress that I have a certain fondness for, uh, Lori Laughlin from Full House. She is among one of those charged. I, I, I don't, those of you who are around my age, I don't care what you say. You've seen Full House, all right? Actresses Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives, I can honestly say I have never seen a full episode of that show. I have seen clips. I have never watched a full episode. I do not have to turn in my man card. And Lori Laughlin from Full House, they are among those who are charged. It's a $25 million fraud where people were finding ways to cheat to get their kids into college. Now, the ways that they cheated were pretty amazing. Um, Aunt Becky from Full House, that's Lori Laughlin, paid $500,000 in bribes, according to this indictment, and created fake photos of their daughter as a rowing, you know, competitive crew star to get into USC. First of all, I mean, I didn't know that it was that competitive to get into USC, and I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just, you know, 500 grand seems like a lot. But beyond that, I rode crew, so I just think it's funny that somebody is photoshopping. I mean, this was this was a an intentional fraud, photoshopping their kids so that they can get into school. I mean, this would be like me saying I'm an, a world class climber and just photoshopping a, a a photo of Buck with the swoop. Probably have to put a helmet on there, you know, at, at the top of Kilimanjaro or something. And yeah, producer Mike is like 500k. The kid must have not been so bright because that's a high price for for usc uh but you know all of a sudden now i'm a climber in kilimanjaro i mean you you really have to look at some of the stuff that these people were doing it's amazing there was a coach women's soccer coach at yale who took four hundred thousand dollars because one of the scams was to to pay off a coach i mean this was all big a lot of it was bribery some of it was cheating on test taking and but but a lot of it was bribery driven so this one uh, you know, this this one coaching uh, group, um, this one person that was at the at the the heart of all of this, the operation. Yeah, it paid admission test administrators. And so people would change the scores they got. Oh, I didn't get a twelve hundred. I got a fifteen fifty on the SAT. They would say, right. That's pretty easy to change the numbers. Just cook the books. They would pay students to take the test for somebody else. That's another scam that they've pulled. Um, but some of my favorites involve the coaches because all the coach has to do is say, oh, this is a, I want to recruit this person for an athletic team. And that, depending on the sport, like women's soccer at Yale, it's probably not enough to just wave you in, but it's going to help a lot. Coach took $400,000 for that. Now, you know, you look at this and you say to yourself, first of all, people really want their kids to get, oh, another one. They really want their kids to get in this school. But a media executive from Nevada allegedly created a a photo of her son as a pole vaulting champion to get him into into USC. I mean, this is amazing. 
Yes, my my son is a world champion pole vaulter and really wants to go to USC. Meanwhile, the kid's never pole vaulted in his life. Uh, another one it has to do with phony learning disabilities. Oh, and my friends, I can tell you from New York City, this was rampant when I was in high school. Absolutely rampant. I knew so many people who were, you know, good-ish students, mediocre to good students at private schools in, in New York City in high school where, you know, the, the arms race to get into an IV or something like an IV was just, this was existential for people. I have to get into an IV. Except Cornell, because Cornell's an Ivy, but it doesn't really count. Whoa, take that one. Um, and I know the Cornell people, they always come at me. They come, you know, come at me. I know, I know. Amherst isn't good. Amherst isn't as good as Williams. See, we can all play these games. Um, but they set up these fake learning disabilities so they would have untimed testing. And then also have other provisions made for them. But here's the beauty of the untimed testing system for people with fake. And those of you who have real learning disabilities, I'm not talking about you. And, I, you're, and you're listening right now to a nationally syndicated radio host who was bottom of his class in grammar school until about the fifth or sixth grade and had a, uh, had a speech impediment. So trust me, I, I needed additional work, additional help. I needed, you know, uh, after school tutoring. I needed speech therapy. So I'm all for making sure that everybody gets their fullest chance and that, it, but I'm talking with people that are faking it, right? I mean, imagine if I was going around as a little kid pretending to have a speech impediment so that I could get out of certain classes. That's what these people are doing. And we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. Now, do I really care about any of this in the sense that should anyone really go to prison for this? Eh. I mean, it is a fraud and, but you're defrauding college admissions processes. Is that, a criminal act? You know, if if I submit uh, a resume that's embellished for a job and I get that job and I'm doing the job pretty well, do they have the right to throw me in prison because I lied to get the job? I, you know, the, I, I, I do have a, a level of discomfort with that because some of these people are facing like really serious federal charges, conspiracy, fraud. Uh, but the, the bigger takeaway from all of this um, the bigger takeaway from all this is that one, our, our society is just far too obsessed with the brand names of these schools and all of that, right? Uh, that we need to stop thinking that where you go to college determines, first of all, even people that go to fancy schools will tell you that where you go to grad school is much more important than where you go to undergrad anyway. And that a lot of people should think much more about going to a, a a solid state school program for undergrad and then go for, if they want to get that that next credential, you know, you really want to shoot for the stars for grad school. But even that, people taking a lot of debt. And I speak to you as somebody who is in the media, one, because I love it, but uh, a part of me is also, I just didn't want to take on a couple hundred thousand dollars of loans to go to business school. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to get paid. I want to work. I want to grow as, a, as an employee and, and as a, uh, as a professional person, I, I'm not looking to take on a lot of debt because I wasn't really sure what anyway. So on the one hand, we need to just stop this. And you know that I've been saying this for a long time. This is not new, but the obsession with brand value in these schools, uh, it's just too much because it's not even true. 
I mean, there are people who buy their way, and this is what you're seeing here. They're, they buy their way into these schools. They get in because of affirmative action rules, because of legacy rules, although no one ever likes to hear this. The legacy admits generally have near the same SAT scores as the overall admitted class. They just get a nod. People don't like to hear that because they like to think that, oh, that's what the, you know, the, the, the affluent, you know, the rich kids, that's their version of affirmative action you always hear. Kind of not really. Um, I'm not saying the legacy is okay, but at least that's more transactional. Speaking of transactional, also to the point about this not being that criminal, I got to say, you know that you can get into, I don't know how many of you know this or not. I know this because I knew people that their families did this for them. You can write a check and get into Harvard. This is well understood. And it costs you, I think, a few million dollars, essentially. But you do it through the advancement office. You, you do it in a way that it's a gentlemanly bribe. Really, what's happened here is the colleges have been cut out of it and other people are getting, you know, the, the athletic coach is taking the cut instead of the advancement office and then putting your name on some room of the library, right, for, for four or five million bucks. I mean, you, you could have you could send an illiterate to Harvard if you've got a big enough checkbook. It's true. It's true. Uh, but then there's the part of this that I think you really you all see this, too, and you know where I'm going. The whole notion we have in this country that we should be uh, taking orders from and listening to this cast of elites and that their elitism comes from this credentialing system. This has been called into question for a while, but now we really see that they're not as special as they think they are. They're not as amazing, brilliant, wise, worthy as we are all led to believe. In fact, I think one of the greatest destabilizing factors in the developed world right now in the first world in the west is that because of the internet and our instantaneous exposure to the thoughts and acts and and ideas uh, of each other which can come with some certainly some drawbacks we now see that these these are not this isn't some cast of elites that should be running the country that every individual should be judged on his or her merits not where where they went to school, what names are associated with them. Uh, that's not who we want to be making our decisions. And that the elites are not nearly as skillful and, and adept, not just at running this country, but at driving our culture, at um, being involved in the most important ways in those aspects of life that we all have to live by without getting a say in, really. So the whole system is up for question right now. The whole system is up for debate. And I know that this is just one case of this fraud, but I assure you, this is not the only one. And in many ways, this has been going on for a long time. And yet we are all still supposed to bow. Oh, you have a, a PhD in you know, women's and gender studies from Yale. You must be really smart. No, no, not true. And I definitely don't want you to just run the country because of that. Maybe you're smart. Maybe you're not. It kind of all depends. Uh, I've got some more details on this and much more coming up, team. Stay with me. So, you know, you look at so many of the people that are at the upper echelons of government and in 
Uh, increasingly, it's been the case in finance for a while. And uh, you see that there are all these people that their big claim to fame is where they went to school. This is where I also get to say, and this is never popular, but, you know, for the boomers out there, getting into Harvard today is statistically about 10 times harder, I think, than getting into Harvard in the 1960s, uh, just in terms of the numbers of applications and the the overall uh, percentages, both the testing percentages and, and the percentages of those who get in. So th- these now have become, this is all a globalized marketplace. Our schools are a global commodity. People from Shanghai and uh, people from, you know, Dhaka want to go to Harvard and Stanford and Yale and apparently USC. I know I'm, I'm going to get some USC. I'm just kidding. USC is great. It's a great school. I know. Although it was funny. <laughs> I can't I cannot tell a lie. There was a whole thing about how the federal government in this indictment laid out, you know, in order to, you know, because they'll establish the different players in the indictment. And they had this listing of all the schools and it was, you know, Stanford University, a very selective private university, Yale University, a very select or highly selective private university, Um, Georgetown University, a highly selective private university, USC. A private university <laughs> that actually happened in the it actually oh no i'm sorry it wasn't usc i'm sorry usc i'm messing with you too much it was um you uc san diego was the one that i think got got the got dunked on accidentally by the federal government uc san diego a college <laughs> that's what they that's what they said it was pretty funny they didn't mean it that way they didn't mean it that way i'm sure but it was it was pretty amusing um, but this is this is forcing a very necessary conversation about, you know, we, we need to stop thinking that these schools are um, producing the leaders of the future and all this stuff, that, that there's this this elitism and sorting that goes on at the top universities uh, has become almost fetishized by our system. And I, I don't know what I can't tell you what it means to go to one of these schools that all these people are paying millions of dollars. Lots of people that go to them don't have very successful careers and don't end up being very happy. And plenty of people that don't go to fancy schools or college at all end up being very happy and doing great. So it is always up to the individual, but this just goes to show you how competitive and out of whack the system is right now. holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. The central and most serious question uh, in this investigation, the reason Robert Mueller started it, is did the current president of the United States assist the Kremlin in an attack on our democracy? And if Mueller, after two years, comes back and says, I don't have the evidence to support that charge, that's a reckoning. That's a reckoning for progressives and Democrats who hoped that Mueller would essentially erase the 2016 election. It's a reckoning for the media. It's a reckoning uh, around the country if, in fact, after all this time, there was no collusion. Yeah, it's a reckoning. <laughs> you're, you're darn you're darn right it is. So I'm hearing that there's a little bit of a delay from the DOJ in, fi- in finalizing the Mueller report. Has to do with a senior DOJ employee who doesn't want to. They want to wait till he's gone to release the report, but they don't want to. Uh, he doesn't want to leave until the report's been released. 
So there's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue here with when this thing's going to come out uh, because some of the people at the DOJ are not going to look so good with all of this. But I, I want to tell you, the more I thought about it after our show uh, yesterday, the more clear it is to me that I think they're going to impeach Trump. I, I'm sorry. I'm not buying this. Oh, no, we're not going to impeach him. I think this is a head fake. And let me tell you why. They have been telling us the president is a traitor. They have been telling us the president is a racist who supports neo-Nazis, who supports white nationalists, who has sexually assaulted dozens of women. I mean, they, they have so many horrific allegations against this president that it is it is truly hard to keep track of them. It's hard to understand you know, the it's hard to remember all of them at any given time. And now, now they're going to say that they want to be reasonable? No, 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 no. They just don't want to be accused of uh, verdict first, trial later. Right? They don't want it to be obvious from their own statements that they've been ready to take down Trump all along. Um, and I have some voices to add into the mix here to that end. And that, and that essentially what it would tell us, if, if the Mueller report comes out, doesn't have anything, and, and they impeach him, and we know they're going to impeach him without finding anything new already in their other investigations, it just means that they were always going to impeach him, which doesn't look good for them. It does not look like they are being honest, which they are not, obviously, a bunch of lying lunatics. But it makes it too clear they're not being honest in this whole process. And that's where I think you should. Uh, that, that's where our friend Andy McCarthy comes in. Play five. Pelosi to carry the message to the public that no, 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 we're not here just to impeach Trump. While that's going on under the radar, Nadler's committee and Schiff's committee will go about the business of trying to dig into anything that could conceivably in their minds be a high crime and misdemeanor. Yeah. On the one hand, you've got Pelosi saying, oh, no, there's not going to be there's not going to be impeachment. And we're not going to go through that process, even though we could. But yet you have all these other investigations going on. So this is just disingenuous. I mean, it, it is very obvious what's going on here. They're trying to, one, hedge their bets because what if they really don't get anything at all from these other investigations? And two, they have to make it seem like they are respecting the process and going through the process and not just jumping to the conclusion that they want at the end of the process. They have to make it seem like this is a real investigation and not just a, a political witch hunt, which is what it has been all along. And that's where Maxine Waters, for example, is, let's just say, to be kind, too straightforward in how she views this to, uh, I think, toe the party line correctly. And she says that they're already there with what they need to get Trump play for. But I believe that we have everything that it needs to basically impeach him. Yeah. I believe that. And you're absolutely right. We're depending on Mr. Mueller. Depending on Mr. Mueller, but we're we have everything we need to impeach him. Well, which is it? I, I need to know which one of those things is what the Democrats are actually saying here, because if they have everything they need, then, then they're not depending on Mr. Mueller. That's pretty clear. 
But if they're waiting for Mueller's report, that means that they should respect the end result of the Mueller report if there is nothing to nothing to go on for impeachment purposes, which I think everyone is pretty much now expecting. Um, and I just think it's amazing. There's this whole industry of people the last two years on TV, uh, not so much on radio, because thank heavens conservatives still are dominant in radio, uh, but on TV and the newspapers and books, too. People have written whole books on collusion, saying that, that, you know, that there was collusion. And how do you write a book on a fantasy but call it nonfiction? What happens to their credibility? When do we have a, a full accounting and, and I would say a reckoning? And uh, in, in ABC's Terry Moran at the start of this segment called it a reckoning for all of the falsehoods, all the lies and the real damage that has been done to our faith in the government institutions that everyone always says, our, our institutions are being undermined by Trump. No, no. They've been really undermined by the anti-Trump resistance. I mean, the anti-Trump left, when it comes to Trump, decided to burn the village down to save it. That's what they've done to the DOJ, to our federal government. They have gone scorched earth, and now they're going to have to turn and look and realize that, no, they didn't save anything. Um, so they're they're looking to establish the new narrative here and that's where the that's where the hesitation on pulling the trigger on impeachment comes from they have to make it seem like they have not entirely made up their minds but i'm here to tell you that they have made up their minds i i really do believe that they will impeach this president and i think it's going to be on the stormy daniels payoff i really do they're going to say that that's a campaign finance violation and and they're gonna they're gonna go with it and they'll throw in some other stuff too but that's that's the way I see this playing out. The, the left is too crazy to be sane on this issue. That's where I come down. We'll see if I'm right, but I think they're too crazy to be sane. We'll be right back. It, it all is part of the Trump derangement syndrome, which has replaced policymaking in the hearts and souls of most of the Democrats, and that's the problem that they have. I think this explains Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statements that she has made, and half the Democrats are making these statements as well. But what really is troubling now, though, is how socialism has found a happy home inside a major American political party's leadership. And it has become the dog wagging the tail. That's the problem the Democrats have, the hatred for Trump, the ideology. And if anything's going to boost the president in his reelection, it's going to be the Democrats more than anything. This is the the counter argument to whether or not they will uh, they will impeach that the obvious and unrestrained hatred of the Democrats as the primary animating force of their 2020 hopes. Right. Essentially, Trump hatred is going to be what the party is first and foremost uh, interested in. Right. That that's really what that's what they're going to be selling is that they hate Trump. Uh, that makes the base, I think, that makes, and I shouldn't say the base, that just makes everyone who voted for Trump think these other people are not serious. Trump has been imperfect. Trump has gotten into fights uh, publicly that I don't think he needed to and that were unwise. He has surrounded himself with very sketchy people at very key, in very key positions. There's no, there's no question about this. I mean, this is, this is just what's happened. And we can talk about why that's happened another time. But that is what has happened with the Trump administration. But there's been a lot of good. Uh, the policies uh, of the administration on deregulation, tax cuts, the, the major policies of the administration. I mean, these things are on point. I think he's doing uh, a good job. And I'm, I am thankful. And I, we have to remember this. I'm thankful every day 
that we have President Trump instead of President Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, I couldn't be in this town. I couldn't live in D.C. under a Clinton administration, under a Hillary Clinton administration, or any Clinton administration for that matter. I, I just couldn't do it. Um, I could not be in a position where I sit around and, and have to hear from all these different people about how, how great she is and how amazing she is. When all, all we, we all know that it's a fraud, that it's a lie, that she's one. Of, she's a fantastic example. Hello! Hillary is a, is a perfect example of someone who has created this resume and this these uh, has all these credentials for herself that when you really look at it, none of it is impressive. It's just all branding. You know, the schools, the where she worked, the what she's done. It's, it's all an effort to build a brand. But there's really a, a lot of poor judgment, ethical failings, uh, incompetence. Look at the rollout of Hillary Care back in the 90s. This is not somebody who's good at things and has skill and expertise in anything other than the promotion of Hillary Clinton. That's really what her Hillary Clinton's career is the self-promotion of Hillary Clinton. So she is a, 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 a yeah, I know she went to Yale Law School and she went to Wellesley before that. And you know people try to make this case that, oh, and, 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 and she was a senator and a secretary of state. Well, she was only a senator because of who her husband was. We all know this. She's moved to New York and ran for Senate there and won. And she was only secretary of state because she had been a senator beforehand because of who her husband is because of her last name. And because Obama figured that a good way to deal with the rival, uh, the rivals in the Clinton administration or, or would be Clinton administration was to co-opt her as a secretary of state. It made sense at the time for him. Uh, but these, these are almost for her. It's largely just a function of being pushed along because of the dynastic nature of politics we have right now, which I find really annoying. And uh, I, I wish we could get away from this. But it's becoming so entrenched that now when you when you criticize that politics in this country should not be a family business, that people should not just say, oh, well, you know, my dad was the governor of such and such. So now I'm this, you know, important thing or that important thing. Uh, you run up into this power structure where, where people will, you know, they'll, they'll come at you on this because more and more we see that there are just famous last names that pop up in uh in politics and when you say things like nepotism is bad and senator or president should not be an inherited position in any way you're starting to find that that's an unpopular point of view in the corridors of power which is is another disconcerting disconcerting thing that is that is going on to be sure um but all along you know the trump derangement first approach of the Democrats, I do think is going to be a useful thing for Trump's reelection prospects. I think that the the hatred of the Democrats, because they can't control it, you know, they'd like to think that they'll make wise decisions, wise choices on all of this. But really, they're going to have to deal with the pink hat wearing, you know, science and women's march, Antifa loving lunatic left. Uh, there are going to be a lot of these different groups that will demand in order for them to be the little grassroots army of whoever the Democrat candidate is going to be. They're going to demand that there is uh, vengeance against Trump for all that he's done. Now, this is just one little thought experiment. What has Trump done? Let's really think about this for a second. Other than poking the media in the eye, which is one of my favorite things that he's done because it was necessary and really only he could do it the way that he has. 
What has Trump done that justifies this derangement? You know, they, they made such a big deal. They made such a big deal about the Muslim ban, for example, which is not a Muslim ban. It's a few Muslim countries. It's, you know, they made, made a big deal about the Muslim ban. Okay. Um, well, what exactly has resulted from that? Why aren't they still so upset about that? I mean, the Supreme Court said it's it's legal, so we know that they were wrong about that. But well, why why have they just forgotten about this? Because who does it really affect? Very few people. And it has not been some big deal. You know, you go down the list of things that they've been so angry about. And you say to yourself, would any reasonable person respond the way the left has responded in these cases with just such a level of insane fury and hatred? What, what, what has Trump done that's we, Obamacare is still in place? Yeah, the individual mandate's not there, but Obamacare is still the law. The border is worse than it was under the Obama administration. It's just true. It's not really Trump's fault, but it's true the border is worse. We'll talk more about that in the next hour. Um, you know, the economy's doing well. Yeah, okay, he gave tax cuts for corporations. Does that really get them so upset? You know, what is it? When you look at it, it's really just that he challenges their sense. He challenges the left sense of their righteousness. And he is an impediment to their power. And that's all you have to be. You just have to stand in the way of the left. You don't have to be an odious person. You don't have to be evil or mean or or uh, pushing policies that they think are particularly problematic in one way or another. You just have to be in the way and they will want to destroy you. So that's where the Trump derangement syndrome really comes from. It's yeah, I mean, Trump is a particularly difficult for them. It's, it's they, they just can't handle um, that Trump is who he is and has gotten away with what he's gotten away with and that they threw everything at him that they could and have not been able to take this guy down. And in that sense, he's kind of a beacon of hope to the rest of us. I really mean it. You know, if, if Trump can take everything the left has, a special counsel probe, all, you know, the exposés, the the Billy Bush tape, the, these complex, multifaceted efforts to ruin and destroy him from a very powerful left wing apparatus in this country across media and politics and academia. And if if they haven't been able to destroy him, maybe it's possible for us to win. Maybe the country doesn't have to be overtaken, especially the culture of the country, by the radical left. Maybe we don't have to accept that. Maybe it's not inevitable that they'll continue to be in control of what they have been in control of. You know, young people will see the light earlier. Colleges won't be indoctrination factories for reflexive progressivism. Hollywood will start to make movies that inspire and, and that people enjoy instead of that preach and preen. Trump is at least hoped that that could happen. I don't know if he'll be able to manage those things during his time in office, but at least we know that the left's ability to isolate and destroy any target they want, it's not 100% because they have not been able to do it to Trump yet, and they have tried. Got a big hour two coming up. Immigration, the expansion of the voter pool. Part of that is through immigration, by the way. And the Democrats' plans for 2020, how far left they've gone, and so much more, team. We have that in just a moment. Got to get fired up every day. The best way to do it, my friends, is with a delicious cup or two 
of Black Rifle Coffee. That is how I start my day every day. I reach for the most American coffee on the market, Black Rifle Coffee, which is absolutely delicious. And not only are you drinking great coffee when you drink Black Rifle, you also are supporting a company that is founded by veterans of the special operations community. These guys love freedom. They love America. And they are building a great American brand with roast-to-order, fresh, delicious coffee. All you have to do is go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. You'll get 20% off your order. That's right. While liberals are threatening to tax your hard-earned money with their socialism, Black Rifle is fueling the fight for freedom by upping their offer to 20% off. Take advantage. Just go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 20% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. The focus needs to be on bringing more people to vote, not driving them away, not throwing them off the voter rolls. We want them, when they come here, to be fully part of our system, and that means not suppressing the vote of our newcomers to America. Young people should also have a say in who represents them. For your consideration, Amendment Number 127, which would lower the minimum voting age in federal elections from 18 to 16 years of age. Restore voting rights to felons who pay their debt to society. We must help more Americans to participate in their democracy. We need to work to remove barriers to voting. You are seeing the left strategy here unfold in real time. You are seeing it day by day, and it is abundantly clear that the expansion of the voter pool is going to be a major push for Democrats in 2020 in real and in uh, just rhetorical terms. And let me explain. They've moved uh, far left as a party, no question about it. Democrats now don't argue with us about what the price of certain things should be. They want to buy something else entirely. We are not fighting for the same future for this country. We have very different visions for what America looks like from from at least the far left. You know, it used to be that they just wanted, you know, uh, more dollars spent on health care. And, you know, they, they wanted the systems that we have to just grow. But now they're looking for, I mean, the government systems. Now they're looking for fundamental transformation of the relationship between citizen and state uh, under the rubric of of climate change and with their open borders logic and all of these different hard left ideas coming together at one time socialism uh they want a different country they think they're fighting for a different country now they're not trying to preserve and this is where you can see the breakdown between the left and conservatives we are trying to conserve the country that we have based upon the wisdom of the past and the knowledge of what is reality in our present. We're not trying to change the world uh, based upon a fantasy, a fiction that we've created and have sold to enough people to give us power. That's what the left does. We say, here's what's happening. Here is the, the truth of this situation or that situation that the government has to handle and deal with. And how do we best, how do we best, uh, if not solve it, at least address the problem or involve ourselves in this fight but democrats are saying you know what maybe we don't really do the focus on winning back 
let's just say what it is. They don't think they can win back white working class voters with some of the candidates that they're putting forward. Um, I, I do not believe that they think that if they have Elizabeth Warren, for example, she will win back previous Obama voters who voted for Trump in 2016 in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and and others. Um, I, I, I do not believe that they are confident in that. And so what are they doing now? They are trying to move. Uh, they're, they're trying to move the goalposts, essentially, on, on who's able to vote. And now they're trying to figure out who's able to vote and change who's able to vote. So, oh, yeah, by the way, Congressman Scott Perry, I saw him in D.C., and he, he listens to the show sometimes. That was very nice of him to say, speaking of, of Pennsylvania. Shout out to Congressman Perry in his office. Uh, but he, he looked at, the, the truth is the Democrats feel like if they can just change who votes, then they can change who wins. And this is what they've been doing all along. They want to give felons and non-citizens and 16-year-olds the right to vote. That's not going to make this a country with wiser decision-making. Let's be clear about this. They don't want to give felons back all their rights. Uh, you know, They're not saying that felons should have gun rights. Even for, non, for, for violent felons, yeah, no, I, I'm all in agreement with you can't own a gun if you're a violent felon. If you are somebody that was writing bad checks, I think you should be allowed to have a, a, a firearm. I don't think that that, you know, I don't think that you should be barred forever. For somebody who, uh, you know, lied to the FBI about a white collar crime, I think you should be able to own a firearm. That doesn't, that doesn't make you a danger to society. But they know that, you know, it's, it's not just who, it's, it's not just who counts the votes, but also who can vote that they're very interested in and winning over voters is something that is a little bit more complicated for them. They would rather just change, uh, change the numbers. I mean, you look at 4 million felons in Florida will be able to vote in the next election. And you've already seen the beginning of uh, what, what I think is going to become a more mainstream position. And, and this, I, I've been right on this stuff all along, folks. They are going to advocate for illegal aliens to begin to vote in uh, in local elections across the country, which just it, it just grows the power base of the Democrat left. And they also are going to want permanent residents, green card holders who cannot vote to be able to vote. They're going to try to expand the electorate dramatically and, and even if they can't do it, you might say, Buck, the Republicans will never go for that. And you know, there'd have to be legislation passed. Yeah, but this is where their party is headed. Because it, it's all logical from their perspective. I mean, they, they operate from a place of illogic, but, but it makes sense to them. If they don't think there's anything wrong with being illegal in this country, if they want all the illegals to stay, if they don't think that illegals have done anything wrong, why shouldn't illegals be able to vote? You know, if, if there's no difference between somebody in, in the eyes of the Democrat Party right now, there should be no difference in the way the government treats somebody who just uh, just ran across the border from El Salvador than you or I or anybody. I mean, I'm assuming a lot of you listening are, were born here. A lot of you probably weren't, but most of you were born here. You or I who are citizens of this country, the Democratic Party has no real preference for us over those who have just arrived illegally, mind you. I'm not talking about legal immigrants. That's a different category. We can talk about that another time. 
they don't view illegal immigration as bad. Well, if you don't view illegal immigration as bad, if in fact you want to encourage illegal immigration, why not extend more rights to them? The Hillary Clinton campaign website was openly advocating for the expansion of Obamacare access in the last election to illegal aliens. So they were saying, oh, they won't get subsidies, but they should be able to get health care on the exchanges. Once you get them in the exchanges, who thinks that that there would be state action to make up the shortfall and essentially give them give illegal aliens uh, the same subsidies that you'd get anywhere else? You can never, never trust the Democrats to adhere to a principle when there is power at stake. They will always find a way to maximize the benefit to them. They do not care. They do not care what rights, what processes, what history, what uh, they will they will trample on all that with a smile as long as it benefits their their political party. I mean, I can't think of the last time the Democrats voluntarily held themselves back because of, oh, I don't know, the Constitution or the law when they really wanted something. It's not not something they tend to do. Uh, expanding the voter pool, though, this is going to be a big agenda item for them for 2020. You wait and see. You're gonna, there's going to be more noise about this one. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. For all of your background investigation needs, these are the people you should go to. They work with startup clients all the way up to Fortune 100 companies. And a big differentiator between them and the other companies in this space is that Global Verification Network has all their people in the U.S. and all the work and all the data storage, everything is done in the U.S., which just gives them greater control and greater security for what can be some sensitive processes, right? You don't want this stuff going overseas. You don't know who's looking into that. You don't know who's in control. Go with my friends for all of your background checks, whatever size company you're at, at Global Verification Network. Go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179. Again, that's 877-695-1179. Tell them Buck Sexton sent you. We're sitting down here fighting this fight on the front line. Whether you agree with them or don't, at least we have a president who's supporting law enforcement, who is fighting for border security. Cartel will, they don't have rules they're playing by. When you say there's not a problem, there's absolutely a problem, and the cartel has no problem crossing any of those lines. Name me one thing the Democratic leadership has offered to slow this surge down, to save lives coming across the border. They have offered no no fixes. The only one that's offering fixes here is, is President Trump. And every time he tries something, he gets sued. It's true. At least Trump is trying. And, and I, I know I've been a little hard on the president recently with the border issue, but I think I've been fair. Uh, but at least we know that the president is engaged on this issue and supports law enforcement and and would if he had his way have a secure border the other side as my uh, buddy tom homan points out there they oppose enforcement at every level they want looser regulations at the border itself they want looser regulations Uh, When it comes to immigration courts, they want interpretations of statute that will favor illegals. They want interpretation of existing law. I mean, everything that they are doing, everything that they do and believe in here when it comes to the border shows 
that they would like to have the status quo continue. There is nothing. uh, They will vote for what they call more border security, but it's really just more people to be at the border to process those who are showing up now. So so Border Patrol is before our very eyes right now, folks, being transitioned from a frontline law enforcement organization into a kind of international Red Cross and soup kitchen for whoever can get via foot by, you know, by walking to our southern border. Border Patrol is now increasingly taken off the law enforcement job, which is necessary for stopping human trafficking, uh, fentanyl and other drugs being smuggled into the country and all kinds of illegal activity that is going on at our border. Right. Other things getting smuggled in. They're being taken off of that mission for what they're now calling the humanitarian mission. And the only thing that the Democrats are willing to fund The only thing the Democrats are willing to fund when it comes to our border is more of the humanitarian mission, meaning people to process those. They they don't want it. They don't want to make it easier to deport. They don't want to make it easier to catch or capture. They want more individuals there to uh, to to bring food and clothing and provide shelter and process in those who are showing up. So what they've done is they've turned the entire southern border into a massive port of entry, essentially. That's where we are. And this is something that should concern everyone in the country, because as I as I was reading yesterday from that piece in The Atlantic, which occasionally has some good writing, uh, if, if we don't have a nation state, you know, we don't have elections worthy of the name and our whole country starts to feel like what's really going on here? If we don't have sovereignty, if we don't have control over our borders, are we even really a country anymore? Are we just slowly becoming something else and not even that slowly? And this is where it's important that everyone knows that the problem is only going to get bigger. We get the National Border Patrol Council President Brandon Judd saying the following play eight. If we do not get control of the border, we're going to continue to see more fentanyl, more opioids, more deaths here in the United States. We have to control the border. And these these migrants, they're being used as pawns. And that's the reason why this is so important. We need our politicians to have the political will to say we need to secure the border once and for all. We do need to secure the border, but if we're going to be honest about that, and we are because this is the Freedom Hunt, We are further from a secure border now than we've been in a long time. That small loophole from the Obama administration about bringing children that are from non-contiguous countries. So it doesn't work if you're Mexican or Canadian. But if you come from a non-contiguous country and you have a child and the, the way that that is processed and especially the speed with which those people are processed when they arrive in large numbers, they have now found a seam A weak seem to exploit in our system, and they are just ramming through now as many people as possible. That's an insecure border, and we are going to see dramatic consequences from this if we do not get this under control. Uh, This was a piece from CNN. You know, I remember recently, I mean, it was not long ago, when if you even brought up the possibility of there being disease issues with this nearly unrestrained uh, migration that is happening into this country. You were a racist and a bad person. You're a racist and a bad person if you even bring this up. 
More than 2,000 people in Immigration and Customs Enforcement custody are being quarantined amid an outbreak of mumps and other diseases. That's according to CNN. All right. 2,000 people. It's actually 2,287 as of March 7th. Uh, have a contagious condition, including mumps, chickenpox, the flu. And that's just what we know about. That's what we know about. Once you really dig into this, I'm sure you'll find that there are people who have other diseases that we get vaccinated against and therefore have herd immunity from it. But they don't get vaccinated for it in Honduras. They don't get vaccinated for it in El Salvador. And other, other countries take this stuff very seriously. And no one thinks that they're racist. I think even to... To be in, is it, I, I think in Dubai, if you're going to become a citizen, you have to have an HIV test. I could be wrong about that. If you're going to be a citizen of the UAE, I think you have to have an HIV test. I mean, there are other countries, you know, health screening for immigrants is considered standard. But in this case, because the system is overwhelmed and because any slowdown at the border must be indicative of some right-wing, fascist, xenophobic, you know, whatever, whatever, all the stuff that they say. Because of all of that, uh, we see them just getting processed through faster and faster. And I just want to know, what are the libs going to say about this when somebody who has a a childhood disease that can be lethal, let's say, or, or just, it doesn't have to be a child, somebody who has a disease for which we generally have vaccinations against, and uh, and there's someone and someone dies, you know, and someone dies of complications or it, does does the government bear responsibility for that, for not protecting the American people from this health risk? No one's saying it's not a health risk anymore. Two thousand plus. Now you can say, oh, Buck, a lot of people get the flu a lot. of Yeah, but we're not trying to import more people that have mumps, chicken box, by the way, there's also in that group. And I know this from Border Patrol. They told me. Uh, you know, yeah, there are pe- there there are people that have HIV. There are people that have much more, uh, even serious health conditions as well. Which I know people will say, "Oh, Buck, that can be managed." And yeah, but what about the cost of the U.S. healthcare system too? I mean, we have immigration restrictions in place so that we're not just taking in the sick from the rest of the world, so that we're not just taking in the poor and those that will need welfare from the rest of the world. You know, President Trump said, I think it was earlier today that we shouldn't be taking people, you know, immigrants should not be relying on welfare. It is already federal regulation in the, in, the, in the federal code on immigration that you cannot be a charge of the state if you're going to be an, an immigrant in this country who's brought, who comes in legally and then, let's say, wants to stay for, you know, a, a green card or, a, you know, become a permanent resident. You're not allowed to be a charge of the state. But no one enforces any of this. They don't care. Because we're lied to all the time. They say that immigrants don't get, illegal immigrants rather, don't get uh, welfare benefits. That's just not true. If you have a kid, then you get all kinds of welfare benefits. So there's a huge incentive to have a kid if you're an illegal immigrant in this country as fast as possible. And we see a lot of people have acted on that incentive. We're not going to fix the border anytime soon, but the government has got to get more serious about this. The the Congress needs to act here. Uh, I mean, I've I'm in hoping that I'm going to get down to El Paso within a month or so and I'll be able to see for myself what's going on and bring you some more ground truth about it. But this we are, we are about to see, first of all, how fake the fake news is when it comes to saying that there is no crisis. This is a crisis that when people realize the magnitude of it, I think there's going to be something of a panic. 
We'll continue to follow. We'll be right back. I'm not allowed to say that, like, you know, or whatever, like, like, whatever. It's like, um, like, whatever, you know, or whatever, like, it's like this, like, like, for what, you know, like, and, you know, things like that. Um, like, it's just like, like, it's just like, you know, um, like, you know, and, you know, um, you know, whatever, like, it's like, uh, because like, uh, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think, um, you know, like, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, so I was like, um, you know, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble when I go back to work. <laughs> like, yeah, like, you know, whatever, like AOC, there are really two sides to this, uh, this equation of dealing with AOC. On the one hand, she runs around like the uh, ignoramus that she clearly is. And we can sit here and have a little bit of fun at, at her expense sometimes. Not in a mean way, but in a necessary way. She's a powerful public figure, and she's somebody who should be called to account for what she uh, does and says. Uh, that said, there's also the side of this that I find increasingly concerning and that is what if the guardrails in the democratic party that have traditionally brought them towards something of the center right i mean i'm not saying that they the democratic party has the democratic party has been progressively hence progressives progressively working its way further left for the last well for my for my lifetime i can just speak to that with some uh, some level of expertise or at least personal experience and they've been moving hard left for 30 years. I mean, since certainly the Clinton administration, but in some ways the Clinton administration was the beginning of the all-out political warfare. No, but even Nixon, you go back to Nixon, they were doing the same thing against Nixon. So, you know, they, they've been moving further and further left all along, but they at least used to have this, at the end of the day, we need to win that center of America concept. And I think they're they're trying to blow right past that. This is why they want to expand their voter pool. They want to let 16-year-olds vote, former felons vote, illegal aliens vote. They're they're not playing for the center anymore. I think that they they have concerns and they should have concerns that this is going to be a you know this is now a place that they cannot return from. They've moved so far left that this is where they're going to be. You know, even Chuck Todd running Democrat propaganda over at NBC or MSNBC or both, he's he's saying the Democrats, man, they're really out there. They're they're whacked out. Play 13. Democrats have spent much of the last month wrestling themselves to the ground. They were embarrassed over the revelation that Virginia Governor Ralph Northam had once dressed in blackface, startled by subsequent accusations of sexual assault against Northam's Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, and chronically unsure this week over how to handle a comment by freshman Democrat Ilan Omar, her second that many saw as anti-Semitic. An emerging, more progressive cohort of elected Democrats is coming into conflict with an older generation of centrists and traditional liberals. These two Democratic factions are united and divided. They're united about the urgency of defeating President Trump next year, but at the same time, they are divided with each side seeing the other as the reason Mr. Trump may wind up winning after all. He's right. I hope he's right. Uh, because the far left stuff 
is just not where this country is. And the, the media is there, and you see this from the way they talk about it. There's a kind of glee, a sense that, oh, finally we're able to push for what we want to push for. Finally we're going to get what we've been fighting for all this time. Uh, but the American people aren't with them on this. The American people are not going as far left as as AOC, at least not yet. I, I'm very much a believer in my thesis that when we have when the economic times get bad, it's a timing issue. If we have a big reset before the election where the economy just just has to burn off a lot of a lot of excess, you know, a 20, 25 percent drop in the stock market, which will affect hiring, which will affect a lot of stuff, uh, affect people's wealth and, you know, home prices. I mean, every, everything gets affected, right? The market is just an indicator. If you don't own any stock, it doesn't mean that the stock market does not matter to you, uh, to your life. But that's when people turn to statism, progressivism, and the AOC-like ideology of the left. And we should be concerned about that because she really does have ingrained in her a hostility to capitalism, as we discussed yesterday, I mean, to free enterprise. She thinks capitalism is irredeemable and a corrupt system. And we don't know of a modern economic system other than socialism with which we could replace capitalism. Right? There's no I don't think that she's suggesting we go back to trade and barter. I don't think she wants America to be a, a you know, monarchist, mercantilist state. I, I, I'm pretty sure that the way that she sees the path ahead is we either have limited capitalism, which we should, we do not have free market capitalism in this country. We do not have it. We have some of it, but we have a tremendous amount of government regulation, government intrusion into the market, uh, crony capitalism. There's a lot of that stuff that goes on too. And that's why as conservatives, our focus is let's get rid of those constraints. Let's get rid of ways that certain people try to help themselves line their pockets and essentially cheat using the system to help them, right? Big business loves big government, for example. AOC is just coming at us with corporations are bad. You know, th these are our statements of faith on the left. Corporations are bad. Dark money is a Republican thing. These are stupid statements, but it's a good way to get the mob energized. It, it's a, a form of affecting community organizing and, and really rabble rousing. And she knows that. Uh, I mean, he, here is an example of just AOC airing out hostility to corporations without understanding the first thing about which she is talking. Play 14. Since Wells Fargo financed the building of this pipeline in an, un, in an, in an environmentally unstable way, uh, why shouldn't the bank be held responsible for financing the cleanup of the, of the disasters from these projects? We were not involved in the financing of the, X, of the XL pipeline. We were one of the 17 or 19 banks that was involved in the financing of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Okay, so, uh, so Wells Fargo hasn't financed any company associated with the Keystone XL Pipeline? No, I, I didn't okay. say that. I, I said we're not involved in financing that pipeline specifically. Okay, so let's focus on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, should Wells Fargo be held responsible for the damages incurred by climate change due to the financing of fossil fuels and, and these projects? I, I don't know how you'd calculate that, Congresswoman. Um, say from spills or when we have to reinvest in infrastructure building seawalls from the uh, erosion of 
um, from the erosion of infrastructure or cleanups, wildfires, etc.? I'm not aware that there's been any of what you described that's mm -hmm. occurred. How about to that um, the cleanups from the leaks of the Dakota Access Pipeline? I'm, I'm not aware of the, the leaks associated with the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, that you're describing. So hypothetically, if there was a leak from mm -hmm. the Dakota Access Pipeline, mm -hmm. uh, why shouldn't Wells Fargo pay for the cleanup of it if, since it paid for the construction of the pipeline itself? Because we don't operate the pipeline. We provide financing to the company that's operating the pipeline. So I, I know we, we you're probably like, Buck, it's, my ears are bleeding. Why am I listening to this, this person? She's the de facto leader of the Democratic Party right now, full stop. If, if you're going to have, you know, Pelosi say something or AOC say something, guess who gets more attention? Guess who moves the needle more? It's AOC already. All right. As I've been saying, she is the Prince Joffrey from Game of Thrones, the Democratic Party. Everyone is kind of in fear of her, even though they know that, she has really earned very little in terms of respect, has no knowledge, has no idea what she's talking about. And that exchange where she can't figure out why you wouldn't hold the bank that finances what is essentially a construction project liable for any uh, issues that come up from the construction project. I mean, think think about this. If. If I if, if I go to the bank and I get a loan to build a house and I build the house really poorly and then I sell it to somebody and the house collapses on that person is the bank that gave me the money that I used to go buy material. Are they responsible for it? I mean, only a, only a really very stupid person could think that she thinks that now, by the way, stupid does not mean not dangerous. Stupid people can be very powerful. They can be cultural icons. They can be dictators. They can, you know, power is not. And, and maybe this is a theme on the show today. Power and influence are not uh, necessarily correlated with skill or ability or intelligence. So we need to we need to stop associating this person is powerful. Well, with well, they must be powerful for a good reason. No, they might just be powerful. And that's what you have with Ocasio-Cortez. She's just powerful, but she is not knowledgeable. She is not wise. She does not have good judgment. And she even managed to pack into this questioning of the Wells Fargo president and CEO there, Tim Sloan. She managed to pack into it. And also, shouldn't you just pay for climate change? All this is, is the government seizing control of every aspect of your life through this whole climate change concept. And then also engaging in a massive redistribution of wealth in order to save the planet. I mean, this is a religious belief with forced donations attached to it. And they want this to be there's a global socialism component to this. Oh, we're the developed world. So for the developing world, we should have to give them money because we've polluted so much to get here and we'll help them. We'll pay for their green jobs and their green tech. Meanwhile, if you got rid of fossil fuels, we have no means. Really interesting last night on, on Tucker show, this guy who was the uh, uh, Canadian. We played his audio on this show once a while ago. I think he was the Greenpeace chief in Canada saying that we have nothing to replace. How do we, what works the farm equipment that's necessary all over the world to uh, harvest crops, if not fossil fuel powered 
combines, tractors, all that stuff. You got no answer to that. But they're not thinking about what the reality is. They're thinking AOC and others are thinking about how they can get the power. They want the power. They'll figure out the details later. You want to see what that looks like? Do some reading on Mao's Great Leap Forward in China. Not long ago. Didn't end well. We'll be back. Mean pettiness has overtaken our politics. Sometimes it seems like we can't govern ourselves or even talk to one another. If you notice, I get criticized for saying anything nice about a Republican. Folks, that's not who we are. That's not how we got here. Joe Biden now saying that we need to not be mean to each other in politics. That pettiness has overtaken our politics. This is the same guy who I think it was last week said that Vice President Mike Pence was a nice guy. And then because I forget, I think it was Cynthia Nixon said that that Pence is very anti-gay, that Biden walked it back and was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Um, You know, it turns out that uh, it turns out that that he's not so nice, that Pence is not such a good guy, I guess. Or, you know, he, he walked it back. I forget how he said it, but he essentially said, oh, yeah, you're right. I. I should have thought more about that before I said that Pence is a nice guy. Let me tell you something. I know people who work for Mike Pence. Everybody thinks Pence is a nice guy. Nobody thinks Pence is not a nice guy. I've only interviewed him in a professional capacity. I can tell you he was a a gentleman in dealing with me. And you might say, well, Buck, aren't they all gentlemen? Uh, No, they're not all gentlemen. They're not all cool. I remember when Kasich came in, he was like, hey, buddy, what's going on? We're going to do an interview here. Yeah, what's up? John Kasich rhymes with basic from Ohio. You know, my dad was a mailman. What's the blaze? Why do you work there? Were you sitting here? You can ask me some questions. Hey, ho, where do you know? Kasich was like that friend of yours when you're in high school who had the dad who thought he was really cool and funny and he was just painfully lame and should have just let you guys hang out and not been all up in your all up in your stuff that's Kasich you know the the one that you're like uh I didn't need your comment on that I don't want your comment on that and thanks for thanks for playing buddy so they're not all they're all super nice and cool um Pence is a nice guy but but here here's really what I want to say about this Biden's calling for us to step away from pettiness and politics and I just say that Democrats uh, and the left really excels at this. They excel at being really nasty, really mean. Uh, if you spend any time on left-wing social media, you'll see it's just all, everyone who's a conservative is a racist, fat, ugly, disgusting, hateful, bigoted, Islamophobic, anti-gay, they say all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, 95% of the time, none of it is true. I mean, they're just being vicious. Uh, And it's echoed by a lot of politicians on the left. I'm not going to easily forget. I'm not going to forget anytime soon that the left has really been rooting for the president's children to go to prison. I've seen a lot of it. I've seen them say it. I've seen them talk about it. They want Donald Trump Jr. to be indicted. They want him. And you say, Buck, well, the president will just pardon him. Not if it's state charges. Not if they can find something in the state of New York to get him or Ivanka with. They've been rooting for that. You want to talk about nasty? That's disgusting. That is disgusting. And people say, oh, but what about Hillary? Well, Hillary, one, did break the law a lot. And two, I was always saying that she should have had to plead to the charges, but I don't think she would have gotten, based on the uh, guidelines and the statutes, I don't think she would have served a lot of time. And I've talked to national security lawyers specifically about that. They agree. But 
In terms of meanness, here's an example. Ilhan Omar was asked about her comparison of Obama and, and Trump, and here's what she said. Play 18. Do you believe that Trump and Obama are the same, just different when it comes to their policies? Do you think that President Obama is the same as President Absolutely Trump? Absolutely not. That is silly to even think and equate the two. One is human, the other is... Is it true that you just think that he's more polished than Trump? One is human, the other is not, she says. Oh, yeah, that seems like a reasonable thing for this person to say. Ilhan Omar says that Obama's human, Trump is not human. If they didn't treat this president the way that they do, I would be more willing to dismiss that as maybe just a bit of hyperbole. Um, But they do think of this president as some terrible atrocity inflicted on the country. They do deeply despise him, and I think that they even dehumanize him, calling him orange, drumpf, all the stuff they say about Trump. It's, it's really meant to make him not a person. They never give him credit for his family. They never give him credit for the people say he's nice. So they're the petty mean ones. Let's be clear on this. If you let it be difficult, hiring can be very difficult. You got a lot of job sites, stacks of resumes, all things in the review process that you don't have to spend your time on. But you know what? Hiring can actually be really easy. And there's only one place you can go and get it all done the right way. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. We're currently using ZipRecruiter at the hill where I work to try to bring on some of the best people because we've had so much success with some of my colleagues that we got off of ZipRecruiter. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they won't stop there. They've got powerful matching technology that'll scan thousands of resumes and find the right people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Check it out, team, because ZipRecruiter is simply the smartest way to hire. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. This deterioration in Venezuela is really getting scary. and Or scarier. It's been scary for a while. Um, but n- now I'm, I'm concerned that we are going to enter the more violent phase of this. There's already violence. There are these groups that will, at a moment's notice, hop on motorbikes to go terrorize Uh, terrorize the opposition to Maduro. So there's clearly been, and there's an incredibly high murder rate, but there's thuggery and street violence going on in a systemic way, in an intentional way in Venezuela and has been for a while. But uh, this now is getting to a place where we've had a, a blackout for an extended period of time. Which you can imagine, you know, having been in New York City at one at one point when there was a blackout in part of the city and seeing it from up high on a building up on a rooftop, it is an eerie feeling when a city is truly plunged into darkness. I cannot imagine what it's like when you're already in the violent chaos of the streets of Caracas. Uh, when you find out that they've been without power, much of the whole country has been without power since Thursday afternoon. And now the 
anti-U.S. Bolivarian revolution BS rhetoric gets trotted out by Maduro, who's looking for people to to blame for this one, because there's a clear desperation. Uh, you, You have photos of Venezuelans picking food out of the back of garbage trucks. You have people who are looking for runoff from water pipes just to get water. Uh, there's there's fear that the especially with the power outage, because remember, power and and water systems and pumping and and if there's a a cleaning going on as well of the water to make it potable, that you lose power and you lose a lot more than just refrigerators and and lights. Uh, You lose ventilation systems and ventilators in hospitals. You lose uh, the ability to pump drinking water you you know you lose security for uh, for important facilities i mean you know without power the world gets no matter where you are very scary very fast you can imagine that in a circumstance like venezuela where you already have a country that is in the process of becoming an entirely failed state unless there's some kind of intervention here from the guaido government and this is when things, you know, with the increase in desperation, I think you also have an increase in the possibility of violence, which is why you've had the U.S. Embassy declare that it will remove all American personnel from the embassy. Uh, it was just down to a, a minimal critical personnel staff, but now everybody's out. Uh, we have put even more pressure on trying to cut off Maduro's government from the lifelines that it has, economic lifelines, primarily Cuba, uh, but also from Russia, where we're seizing bank accounts, freezing bank accounts, shutting down their finances. Uh, and I will say that we are taking a, a pretty active role in this. There are dozens of countries that want Guaido to be in charge and not Maduro. Really, all of Latin America, except for Mexico, interestingly enough, because it's got this very far-left Peña Nieto government. Uh, But Mexico, Nicaragua, Cuba, maybe one or two other Latin American governments I can't think of off the top of my head. They're the only ones that don't want Maduro gone. They are still sticking by Maduro. They still want want him to be uh, the, the president of this desperate country. But the U.S. is, you know, we are we are now partnering with Guaido in the ouster of Maduro. And we should be very clear about that. This has this has moved beyond just diplomatic recognition and statements of support, which I think we're well within our rights to do. Uh, We are now engaging in I do think it's fair to say financial warfare. And I know people are going to say, oh, Buck, that's not that you're going too far that well when you're shutting off all access to funds for a country and we we may even i i wouldn't be surprised if we started going beyond the sanctions on venezuelan oil and maybe even started perhaps shutting off additional you know sources of, of revenue into the country uh so you know it's it's a very volatile situation And when you've got a blackout happening, oh, we're being blamed for the blackout. Of course, the Maduro government is saying that it's our fault and that we are the reason and and that there's U.S. technology at work here. Uh, So, you know, this is something that is this is going to be a a test, I think, for the Trump administration. How well can they handle this? They've got Elliot Abrams as the point man on this. 
who is a, a very savvy guy, but comes with a lot of political baggage because of his long uh, time working in foreign policy for the United States uh, government. And as I said, we, when, you, when you pull out all diplomatic staff from an embassy, that means that you are really concerned about two things. One is just retaliation against embassy personnel in general. Uh, but usually that also means that there is a, a feeling that we would not be able to uh, sufficiently protect that embassy in the event of an incident. And if you can't count on the host government to respect diplomatic immunity and diplomatic protocol, which we cannot in Maduro anymore, I think that's fair to say, uh, the, the contingent of Marines that they have there to guard the ambassador and, and to guard the embassy staff, that, that that's not going to be enough. Uh, they will not be in a position to protect that embassy if Maduro decides to seize them. And you got Elliot Abrams running around saying that all options are on the table. That That's a, you know, people can argue with me on this. We can debate this, but all options means all options. And I, I certainly hope that we do not get into a, get to a place of, any kind of military action in Venezuela, which would start, you know how it goes, folks. It starts small. It starts with, okay, we've got a, a U.S. and we've, we've got some U.S. nationals who are uh, in jeopardy and we got to go in and get them. And, you know, these, these things, no one usually, at least sometimes, but it's rare for someone to say, yeah, let's just add another, add another military uh, intervention onto the list of things we want to do as a country and as a government it starts out usually smaller than that. You know, look at look at our intervention in Somalia is a humanitarian mission to feed people. And there are other countries involved. And as we all know from the Black Hawk Down incident, that can be a lot more than you bargain for. So I, I, I am now entering a zone of caution here. I think the, I think Trump and his team have done the right thing overall. But we cannot be in a position where we are responsible for what happens in Venezuela and we certainly don't want to be involved in a military, uh, any kind of a military escalation because Maduro's back is up against the wall and he knows it. And, and there are a lot of people that work for him. You have to remember, they view this as uh, they view this as ride or die. You know, they either stay in power and have power, have, have authority and wealth, or they might be spending a long time in a Venezuelan prison which I'm sure is a particularly nasty place to be. So this issue, we're going to continue to watch it, but I'm, I'm looking at this with a bit of trepidation, so we'll stay on it. You're probably familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member, but did you know that the AARP is all about left-wing politics? And they actually lobby for a lot of progressive causes. They fought tooth and nail for government-run health care. You, know, you don't need that. So if you're a senior and you want to belong to an organization that is moving policy in a smart, conservative direction and gets you all kinds of great benefits, discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans, cell service options, you need to check out my friends at AMAC. Why do I recommend AMAC? Well, they bring you all the benefits of AARP, but they don't have all the progressive baggage. AMAC was founded by an Air Force veteran, and he wants you to fight the good fight with him by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. One more time, amac.us slash buck. 
Ooh, look at this. Democratic lawmakers unveil Journalist Protection Act amid Trump attacks on the media. This is from three Democratic lawmakers. They've introduced this Journalist Protection Act that will designate certain attacks on those reporting the news as a federal crime. Who put this forward? Representative Swalwell, Blumenthal, and Menendez. It was originally uh, introduced by Swalwell back in February 2018. Here's what they say about this. The Journalist Protection Act makes it a federal crime to intentionally cause bodily harm uh, to a journalist affecting interstate or foreign commerce in the course of reporting or in a manner designed to intimidate him or her from news gathering for a media organization. It represents a clear statement that assaults against people engaged in reporting is unacceptable and helps ensure law enforcement is able to punish those who interfere with news gathering. Uh, and this is also obviously turned into a talking point against Trump. They're saying they're doing this because Trump's climate of extreme hostility toward the media needs a response. And that, quote, such antagonistic rhetoric encourages others to think, regardless of their views, that violence against journalists is more acceptable. This is complete and utter bull. Trump is not encouraging violence against the media. The media does not have an, oh, my gosh, we're being targeted violence problem. The media is full of a bunch of babies. Honestly, they're so lucky. And I, I say this to you. I am so lucky every day that I'm able to do this show and that I have all of you listening to me on 125 stations or so across the country and a whole a whole additional army of folks who just listen on the podcast. Uh, I am really lucky and it's why I like my job so much. I think it's it's a great thing and I feel very blessed uh, honestly and truly to be able to do this work. Uh, I, I do not run around acting like oh it's so hard. <laughs> And, you know, I've got the left wing trying to take me out, take me down, call me names, lie about me. All that stuff happens all the time. I don't talk about it that much on the show, but you know, they're, they're always trying to take me out. And people in within the media business are trying to find conservatives like me to to make an example of, to undermine, to advance their own careers with. So, you know, anyone can sit around and a lot of you are probably like, yeah, Buck, guess what? My job's hard here. And we could all sit around and talk about all the problems with come with our respective. That's why they call it work. That's why they pay you for it. If it were, you know, sitting around eating cream puffs and getting a massage all day, which does sound pretty amazing right about now, uh, they probably wouldn't pay you for it. You might have to pay them for it. So I, I, I understand this. I just think that journalists are honestly as, as a class and that's really what they are. And that's how they view themselves. They are a, a journalism is a personal identity for a lot of people. And a lot of them have never had another job, which I also think. I think it's bad. I think that that's problematic. I think that a lot of folks who go right into journalism and have never done anything else. Now, there are obviously really good people who do that. And you, you don't have to send me all the names of all the great people. I'm sure there are amazing people at Fox or reporters. This is all they've ever done. But I think that there's too much of that within journalism so that you don't have enough of a real life perspective brought into these newsrooms from outside of this enclave. And look, 90% of journalists are libs, for example. Well, if you're, a, if you're a lib journalist that goes to work for only lib publications, you really don't understand the country. You just don't. You haven't had enough interaction with, with the American people who disagree with you or see things differently from you. Uh, so I, I think that there's huge structural problems 
in journalism in general. But this idea that they need to pass a federal hate crime statute to protect journalists for doing their jobs. Well, then who else gets a federal hate crime statute? Right. Who, who else? What, what other employment involves interstate commerce? Oh, well, pretty much all commerce based on. And, you know, now we could who's ready for it. Who's ready for it? Wickard v. Filburn, the Supreme Court case that was one of the greatest travesties of constitutional jurisprudence, certainly of the last hundred or so years. I mean, it's a it is terrible for us. So Wickard v. Filburn for quick review. Some of you like, Buck, I know Wickard v. Filburn. No, no, no. Hold on. This one will be fun. I'll make it quick. It was a case where you had a guy who was growing wheat and he didn't want to. So this goes right to the heart of the regulatory powers of the federal government. This guy was a farmer in Ohio and he had 12 acres of wheat beyond what he was supposed to under the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938. And he said, look, I'm just growing this wheat for myself. I'm just growing my own wheat. You know, you know, it's wheat for me. Why does the federal government get a say in this? Well, the federal, the, the Supreme Court came back with an opinion that said, well, because you're not going to be buying wheat on the wheat market and the wheat market is a is an interstate uh, market, you are affecting that market by not by not buying on that market because you're making stuff for yourself. So we can regulate even wheat that you're making for your I mean, this was essentially the beginning of the federal government's ability to regulate almost anything it wants. Um, Wickard v. Filburn is the uh, the first of the many headed hydra of federal overreach, which we, we are becoming more used to. And that's not a good thing. I mean, you shouldn't think uh, and I shouldn't think that it's normal now that, for example, gun crimes can always really be prosecuted as a federal crime. And you may now not all not always always. So don't take me literally on that. Take me seriously, but not literally. But this is true. Gun crimes that involve, you know, robbing a liquor store, for example. If the feds want to process, uh, prosecute you rather as a federal, uh, that is a federal crime, there are statutes they can do it because you're interrupting interstate commerce with the armed robbery. That's not the way the federal government's supposed to work. This has also led to vast over criminalization where you have, they estimate because they don't even know over 5,000 federal criminal statutes and regulations that have criminal penalties attached to them. And and that's another really bad thing. When we ask the federal government how many crimes it can prosecute, it should be able to give us an exact number and know what is a crime and what is not. But instead, what we really have is a federal government that says, well, you know, it really depends, really depends. Um, and, And to that, I just would respond. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We started out with three. Three crimes in the Constitution, piracy, counterfeiting, treason. Now we've got, you know, illegal packaging of a fish in plastic instead of paper in international waters. Uh, we, we have uh, people who got rid, I mean, you know, who went, wandered onto federal land and didn't know they were on federal land and found an arrowhead and then are being prosecuted because they found essentially a really old rock on the ground and it falls under a statute about disturbing native artifacts or something. I mean, just stuff like that. That all comes from this mentality that is exemplified and has been built upon in Wickard v. Filburn that allows the federal government to to essentially involve itself in whatever it 
wants. So there you have that, my friends. I know I went a little bit of a tangent there, but I think it's a good one. And as, so this obviously shouldn't be a, a law that anyone passes. This is just the Democrats trying to make journalists feel better. Because, you know, here's the other part of it. Journalists are used to feeling like the echo chamber is theirs and theirs alone. And now that there's all this connectivity with the, you know, the 50 percent of Americans that journalists despise, they're seeing now that, oh, those people can actually respond back to them. And Trump has kicked open the door here by saying that you don't have to listen to these people. Some of them are good, but some of them are bad. Some of them are ethical, but some of them are jerks. Well, now that means that we can always ask that question. Is this just because this person writes for a newspaper or is on the television talking about the news doesn't mean that they have some special knowledge. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're entitled to our respect. You see, that's really part of what's made journalists so upset. They're not so much worried about their physical safety because that's just babyish. I mean, journalists are fine. I've told you in the last 30 years, I think five journalists have been killed doing their jobs in the United States in 30 years. That's according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, who did not like when I pointed out that that's not exactly a terrifying statistic. What they really don't like is that their prestige and their place in our society has been questioned in a way that they weren't ready for. And they want they want some federal government nod to the fact that journalists are so important to the First Amendment. That's what this is really about. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call time, everybody. If you want to be a part of it yourself, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That is where I uh, recommend you go. And let's get to it. Brian writes, Buck, I appreciated your comments yesterday about what if the left tries to do to you what they are attempting on Tucker, you will go out with your shields high. Know that you have a team of ardent patriots behind you that have got your back on social media. They try to get you on some ignoramus action from your freshman year of college. I'm reminded of the one comment that Walter says to Donnie at the end of The Big Lebowski. The social media outrage clowns are the nihilists. No, Donnie. These men are called nihilists. Hey, Brian, I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, it, it's I've been saying it for a long time. It's one of the reasons why I try to maintain some consistency on this issue, among many other issues. Uh, at some point, someone's going to say that I've done something or said something that is uh, problematic from the view of the left. If, if I've done something that's actually problematic, I will always admit it, apologize for it. And uh, and that is just a function of of honor and integrity. Uh, but what I'm saying is that the the outrage mob, the media matters. In fact, media matters came at me today a little bit. Uh, and there'll be more of that, I'm sure, in the future. Media matters comes after me occasionally on Twitter and you know, they'll they'll try to to take me down. And look, as long as the team is with me, I'll, I'll always be doing a show and uh, I'm not going to back down to the outrage mob. And I, I really hope that what we've seen from Tucker changes the standard going forward, uh, because this is just nonsense. This this thing of if you're a conservative and you say something that's bad a long time ago, or you say something that's that's borderline, maybe inappropriate, but you know stuff happens. The world's a the world's a contact sport, my friends. Uh, you're supposed to just be ruined and destroyed forever. But liberals say crazy stuff all the time. You know, liberals do things that you think to yourself, if I ever did that, I'd never, you know, I'd never work in that industry again, and I'd be ignominiously expelled from the public square. It just it, the double standard is just too much, and I'm sick of it. 
And I, I don't want to live my life by their rules anymore. Oh, it's tough. You know, people get sponsor pressure and then they, you know, then then all of a sudden it's a, you know, do you want the paycheck or not? And you got to remember there's for some people, there's real consequences for all this, which is why I hate organizations like Media Matters. I mean, they don't they're not adding to knowledge, to discourse. They're not amusing. They're, they don't make people feel better. All they do is just they're just out there to destroy they're out there just to to light small woodland creatures on fire for their own amusement. They're disgusting. They're despicable people. And a lot of these left wing organizations uh, out there that support them, whether we're talking Daily Co's, MoveOn.org, you know, the Young Turks, uh, these different groups that are thinking that this thing. I even the, the Pod Save America guys are advocating. I saw this today. They're advocating for the boycott against Tucker. You know, why don't they why don't they offer to have Tucker on their show and debate some of these issues? Or why don't they actually try to engage and make their points clear now that they just they just want they want their competitors gone. They want people that they disagree with destroyed, ruined, humiliated in front of their families. You know, I I try on this show for the most part. Yeah, I mean, occasionally some public personalities are going to come in for some criticism and mockery. um, But I I don't make fun of people's appearance. And that's one. I'm not perfect, I know, but I try very hard. You know, I I, I don't you know viciously make fun of anyone's appearance because I just think that's just beneath anybody. Uh, and and I try to keep it on the substance and the ideas. Uh, what you see now, especially in in social media world, is that it's always just just trying to destroy the people who are. It's always ad hominem. They're trying to destroy the message. And it's a it's going to be worse in this country going forward, too, unless unless we finally take this is what taking a stand means, by the way. It's easy to say I take a stand on something. And then when there's pressure and there's heat, you go, oh, I'm not going to take that stand anymore. That stand has been fun, but I'm not doing that stand anymore. Um, that's that's easy to do when you say that I will not bow to the outrage mob, understanding that that may come with additional consequences. That's. That's taking a stand, uh, and that's what uh, that's what Tucker is doing, and that's what a lot of other people I think around him realize has to be done. And this is all apart from the fact that look, I don't I don't like some of the stuff that Tucker said at all. I think it's bad, but I don't think that people should lose their jobs and careers for uh, saying something here or there, especially ten years ago, that is ill thought out, objectionable, wrong, any any of the above. Uh, and yeah, obviously, I also like I like Tucker and know that he's a good guy. He's a good person. He's worked incredibly hard to get where he is. He serves a very important role in public discourse. He's a warrior for our side. You know, that all factors into it, too. And I think if we my one of my biggest criticisms on the right is that we leave our own behind on the battlefield all the time on the battlefield of ideas. We let our people just get eaten alive. And then we wonder why we don't have more media platforms. We wonder why the left has so much institutional dominance in places ranging from newsrooms across the country to Hollywood studios to Netflix to Google to Facebook to you name it. Well, maybe if the people that know what's right actually stand up and fight, we won't be in this position. Maybe if the individuals across the country who understand that there are principles that are at stake and that the left will just run us all over. They will go Vendée Rebellion on us if we allow them to, metaphorically speaking. Some of you remember that from yesterday's show, uh, which actually got a lot of feedback about. I'm glad you guys liked a little bit of the the history of, well, the history of then and how it affects now. 
So, as you can tell, I mean, I've thought a lot about this. I've also gotten a lot of heat for uh, standing up for Tucker and now and I and really just standing up for Tucker's right to not lose his job or his livelihood uh, because the left wants another scalp. You know, I, I, I think that that so now I'm I the eye of Sauron has begun to turn on to me a little bit here. So, you know, just need, all you can do is be who you are and keep fighting. And that's true for all of you listening to this show too. be who you are, keep fighting and support the people that fight for what you believe in because they need your support now more than ever. Rachel. Hello there, Buck. I thought your story on the French Revolution uh, was gruesome and hard to listen to. I know that it is necessary to know for our children's sake. It's sobering to think that this could happen to us. God forbid. On another note, I was curious. How are you able to eat Girl Scout cookies since you have celiac disease? As always, shields high. Rachel. Uh, well, Rachel, I didn't discover that I had celiac disease until 2012, I think. 2011, 2012. So I've gone my entire life up until that point eating whatever I want, you know, thinking I have no allergies or, or intolerances. As you know, celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder. It's not really an allergy. But uh, so I, I know how all these things taste. So when I talk to you about drinking beer, or kicking back, eating pizza, oh, I did that for decades. I know all about that. I just can't do it anymore unless I want to drink sorghum beer and eat oh, almond flour pizza. Some of you will laugh, but almond flour pizza is actually excellent. So there's that. If you're ever in New York City, the best gluten-free pizzeria is called Keste. I'm telling you the pizza is as good as any other pizza you've had anywhere else. My man Bart writes, Buck, is it not odd how the Dems always prioritize Muslims over all the other so-called victimized minorities? This was made evident by the recent bill that was supposed to condemn Omar's anti-Semitism, but didn't really. You see the same thing in England, France, Canada, and Sweden, where Muslims can bomb concerts, behead soldiers, ram trucks into crowds, and yet avoid widespread condemnation. Worse, the government goes into overdrive to try to uh, try to cover up the crimes. I think money is behind it. I suspect that all the leftist parties, including the Dems in the USA, are receiving billions of dollars in funding from some big Persian Gulf donors. This is being reported all over. Nobody seems to grasp the sheer magnitude of the problem. Well, Bart, you've opened up a few things here. Uh, one is that you remember when you're talking about intersectionality and the way the left views competing uh, identity groups and how they factor into the power structure, right? That's what intersectionality is. And it's a, it's a central concept on the, or to the progressive left these days. When you um, see how they view things, it really is like they're putting it up on a wall and you get points for different things. And so in the case of an Ilhan Omar, you get points for being Muslim, female, and uh black and being a, a born born in Africa and then a refugee to this country. So you're a particularly protected person as a result of, of that status. And, you know, Jews in this country in and and in Israel are considered well off, first world, highly educated and white. And so even though you have this long millennia long history of oppression of the Jewish people inter the intersectional left can't really adopt the uh, or, or can't really fully invest itself in 
viewing Jews as a minority that needs protection the same way that other minority groups do because Jews do not fall into an oppressed underclass status in this country. Uh, so and in the post, well, I was going to say in, in the post-war era of Israel, though Israel is always ready for another conflict if it needs to be. But after multiple battles with its Arab neighbors, Israel is also considered not the oppressed, but the oppressor in leftist ideology. So that's why they they have this problem with uh, Omar's uh, anti-Semitism, uh, Omar's anti-Semitism. They don't really want to call it out because they still view Omar as first and foremost a uh, a victim. And they think that she is more a victim than the Jewish people that she obviously harbors some very nasty uh, sentiments about. So, team, you know what? I'm going to do a double roll call because I know I went on a bit of a tangent there and I've got a whole bunch more in the inbox here. So why don't we hit a, uh, a just take a take a quick breath, have that last sip of Black Rifle, although it's kind of late. So unless you got to work tonight, I don't know if that's a good idea. Coffee tends to keep me up at night. Brandon, is co- can you drink coffee late in the evening? No? Nah. Wait, what? I don't drink coffee at all. You said what? I like my energy drinks, which I know are bad for you, but... Oh, you're one of these people that's made Monster Energy like one of the most profitable stocks to have owned in the last 15 years or not something. Not Monster. Like. Monster tastes... I mean, they're not a sponsor, so I can say that they taste like battery acid. But I might have like a, a Red Bull over two days. Kind of is a Red Bull really? Is that is that your the one of choice? That's the one you go to? Yeah, yeah. It's because it's I don't know. It's like sipping soda or carbonated water. It's nothing like too bad. But I don't know. I, I love the smell of coffee. I just don't like the the taste. All right. Well, I'm weird. You, you learn you know something this. new. Learn something new every day. We're gonna we're gonna come right back with more roll call. Stay with me. All right. So we're back with a second piece of roll call here. We had so much coming into our inbox that I figured we could spend a little more time on it and so here we are brendan writes looking ahead to 2024 i believe it is abundantly clear that those that have chosen politics as a career choice have no intention of advancing the eight-year trump conservative movement unfortunately the best candidate choices of shapiro kirk crowder or owens won't be old enough to run for president Uh, perhaps carlson sexton or maybe adam carolla are the best choices we have I think the people that have chosen political commentary is the only way uh, a conservative message and policy can unapologetically be brought to the American people. What do you think? Um, so uh, I, I think if you're asking me, do we have people who are old enough to run for president, who are really conservative and could carry the message but aren't part of the boomer generation, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals would think right away of um, Dan Crenshaw who is obviously a member of Congress, former Navy SEAL, very well respected, very reasonable in his approach to politics uh, and is and is liked by conservatives in the traditional mold, as well as the different echelons of Trump world. So I, you know, I think Dan Crenshaw is somebody that you are obviously going to hear a lot more about. And I think that he's likely the, the future of the party uh, in a lot of ways. And I know that's early to say, but he's certainly got all the credentials and he's got the respect of people. And you could tell he's got the the persona, the temperament. Uh, so, yeah. Do I think you're going to see Crenshaw 2024? Yep, I do. I think you are going to see Crenshaw 2024. And I, I think he's going to be a real contender. Um, I've been saying for a while on the show, so where are our uh, Rhodes Scholar Navy SEALs? And I know people who are so impressive 
in every respect. And I feel like they don't run for office. They just want to go into the private sector and have a nice life. But we should get more people that have really impressive backgrounds. And I know that, you know, there's uh, Tom Cotton went to Harvard Law School, was a platoon commander, I think, in Afghanistan. I mean, look, we, we get people like that who run for office. But Crenshaw is along that mold of, you know, a uh, super, super commando, wounded veteran, really smart guy. I think he went to Harvard for um, not business school, but maybe got a Kennedy Kennedy school. Uh, so so some people, the credentialing system works really well. Uh, you know, I know I've been talking about how the elites are not what they pretend to be. But when you're a when you're a combat veteran SEAL who then goes to Harvard and becomes a congressman. Yeah, no, you've you're impressive. That's that's legit. Uh, Michael writes. Hold on a second. Hey, Buck. Remember those first Saturday shows? I do. I remember when I thought you were more libertarian than conservative. Since you have become more popular, I have learned the truth. You are more conservative than you have uh, than you are libertarian. I'm what has been called a conservatarian by your friend Charles Cook. Um, so I'm still a big fan of yours. Uh, I'm just wondering, what do you think about this? Have you changed? Is it subconscious? Uh, well, Michael, I, I, I think that like a lot of people, I evolve as I get older and think more about certain issues. And um, for example, I mean, I, I think that the libertarian approach on some stuff is because of the nature and the power of the progressive left that we face. It's kind of like people who said, oh, well, what Gandhi did with nonviolence worked in India. It would not have worked against the Nazis. Uh, and I'm not trying to make I, I know anytime you bring in Nazis, you're going way off the rails. But the authoritarian left has become much more aggressive and authoritarian, even over the last five or six years. And so while we can sit around saying, hey, let's just have hands off with the government, man. No, if we don't win the fight and actually have control of the government that is making these decisions, they're just going to make all these decisions for us. They will be in charge. And so it's for me. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm uh, I prefer libertarian. Uh, I prefer libertarian policies in a lot of ways. But I think that you have to take a conservative, uh, a conservative's approach to winning on the issues and understanding that you can't sit this stuff out. That if you say, oh, we just won't have the government involved, what you're going to have is the left wing government involved. So, you know, it's a little bit of a fight fire with fire response, I think. But it's an honest response, my friend. That's it for today, team. More coming tomorrow. Shields high. You know, it's a great feeling when you get that $100 bill that you find stuck inside a jacket that you haven't worn in a long time. Isn't that amazing? Right. Feels good. Well, imagine finding hundreds of dollars in the papers that are sitting in your filing cabinet desk or boxes in your attic. You know, it's that old 401k paperwork from the job before last. The one you don't really remember. Well, that money is sitting there gathering financial dust. It could be working a lot harder for you. My friends at Noble Gold can see if you qualify for a precious metals IRA, and they'll do all the heavy lifting for you. This could make you a lot and cost you nothing. Give Noble Gold a call at 877-646-5347 or text my name, Buck, to 511-511 and receive their free investor's guide. Plus, for all qualified IRAs above $20,000, they'll also include a complimentary rare-graded Morgan Silver Dollar valued at $150. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com or text BUCK to 511-511. Individual results may vary. Invest wisely. Standard tax rates may apply.